Welcome to Tech Chairs, a new podcast all about sport and technology. Because technology is the single biggest force shaping modern sport. But how did we get to this point? So in this first series, we'll try to answer that with the help of innovators and experts from all over the sports that we love so much. So whether you're a fan, work in the industry or are simply tech curious, this is the series for you. Welcome to another episode of Tech Chairs with me, Rebecca Hopkins. And me, John Inverdale. Counting down to the Sports Technology Awards on the 18th of May in New York, which is nearly sold out. I'm so excited about the incredible brands and people who will be in the room. Well, this time around, it's the second of our conversations with people who've significantly changed one sport in particular or sport generally with their innovative thought processes or maybe just a blinding flash of inspiration. So which one was it with Andrew Steele, the man behind DNA Fit, where genetics and exercise and sport and performance all collided as one? So, Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. And you better start off by telling us what DNA Fit is. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So yeah, DNA Fit is a business which I was part of the founding team um, astonishingly 10 years ago now, Uh, so um, back in 2013. And uh, really, we were trying to help people identify how their genetic makeup, how their DNA profile might affect the way they responded to exercise or nutrition and some other sort of well-being and health factors as well. So stress and sleep response, for example. So we really started the business with a kind of sports frame to what we were doing, helping people sort of hopefully improve their sporting performance and that came partly because I was an Olympic athlete previously, and, and that was sort of very close to my heart. Uh, and as we grew, the people that you know, became users of the product and that really got benefit from us was much wider than just sport, but really at its heart, it was what I call a, a sort of human performance um, technology. But what was the moment that made you think, do you know what, we can absolutely link these two areas? Well, I won't take uh, credit for that exact sort of flash of, um, uh, of of brilliance. So a little bit of the story for this. was So I was a, at the time, I was still a sort of professional athlete. I was running the 400 metres for Great Britain and I was on a training camp in Arizona. And uh, one day a swab arrived in the post for me, which uh, had been sent by a, a chap who was actually looking to explore sort of feedback from sports people on this potential technology that he'd been working with a scientist on. And there was a couple of, of um, really interesting researchers looking at how this might be applied. So they'd been ever since back in sort of the, you know, with the advent of the Human Genome Project, which decoded the entire human genome in 2003, there was um, people thinking that they could probably identify if someone could be a sports person or not. And there was lots of disparate research into the utility of genomics in sporting performance. We know there are heavy genetic factors, but no one had quite sort of figured out what that utility would be in knowing that and how to do it cheaply or at scale, basically. And um, I was an athlete and I'd, I'd reached a certain point in my career where I was on the way down, should I say, from my uh, perform- <laughs> from my performance sort of peak. So I, I did relatively well at the Beijing Olympic <laughs> Games in 2008. Um, and then I uh, failed to make the London 2012 Games four years later. And this came sort of just after this reckoning where I'd had to sort of come to terms with the fact I'd missed out on the biggest possible thing that was ever going to occur in my sporting life and figure out sort of what, what I was, who I was in the future, what I was going to do next. And um, this sort of test came at the time and I, I did it with some ambivalence. Um, so, oh, yeah, no, no, no problem. Yeah, I'll take this test. It was just a little swab that you did on the inside of your cheek. And I basically got a very 
manual sort of word document from the scientist as a result saying by the way there's a few things here you you haven't got this particular gene which is overly common in elite level sprinters you do have a particularly high risk of um, Achilles tendon injury and there was a few other factors and they all spoke very personally to what I'd experienced in my sporting career and so I at the time I just wrote back to him and said by the way this was great well done if you wanted to build this out people like me would probably like to see one two and gave a list of features basically a list of suggestions of what they could do with that technology and to cut a long story short that ended up with me meeting a guy called Avi who was the, the original founder and CEO uh, and we started working together and uh, and that really kicked off the story of this uh, this business journey which ultimately sort of eventually led to a very high value IPO listing on the Nasdaq last year in 2022 in a, a few different guises but effectively a sort of 10 year journey from that that start in 2013 all the way through to uh, to the Nasdaq in 2022 because it was incredible because actually the way Andrew and I first met was at one of our awards where DNA Fit entered and won and with all our awards we get comments back from the judges and I have to say Yours was one entry to this day where the judges were going, what is this? It's almost this dark art. It was, it really did make a difference because people just weren't used to seeing that type of tech in sport. So to what degree were you guys blazing a trail or were you really bringing something that was fairly common in elite sport to the masses? Well, it definitely wasn't common in elite sport, for sure. I think what we did is we, we didn't really invent anything that new. And as a result of that, you, you almost can't in this space because you can only do things that have got the correct evidence level to actually put into the, the product and the package. So when you come to a you know a laboratory test or this kind of screening insight into someone, you know, you have to go off published evidence in order to know what you can and can't say and what is uh what is you know, potentially a misleading sort of path to go down or a genuine piece of advice and how to make that useful. So we weren't really, um, you know, we weren't discovering entirely new genetic variants associated with a, a trait or a, a sporting ability. We were just kind of consolidating the available published peer-reviewed research and trying to figure out a way to package that together that might be useful for someone. There was a movement towards kind of quantified self, so wearable technology telling you more data about yourself, people suddenly having direct access to their own health as a result of that, um, rather than just having your doctor tell you when you're unwell. And then we were capturing the sort of availability of the technology became achievable from a cost perspective at that point as well. So there's a famous graph of to do a, a, a genome sequence in only sort of 2005 or 2006 would have cost you almost a million dollars per sample. And then by the time, you know, we were bringing our test to market, the, the test could be 150 pounds. And so there was this astonishing reduction in cost in the sequencing methods and the extraction methods that allowed you to bring a, a DNA test to market. So it was very much pushing the envelope, but it wasn't completely new science. It was just what was possible at the time we were able to aggregate and bring together into a great product. And Andrew, given what you know now you know if a 14 year old said to you i want to be a marathon runner or i want to be a table tennis player or uh, uh, you know an olympic rower do you think we're at the point now or very close to the point now where you can say don't bother because your cardio is not going to be suitable don't bother you're never going to have long enough levers don't bother you're never going to have enough speed reaction to so that we can almost instantly 
direct people into the right areas and conversely take them away from areas which they are palpably not suited to? I don't think so. And I almost think we will never reach it. And that's because I'll tell you why. And, and this the, genomics is a, is a factor and how you're sort of built from a DNA perspective is a factor. But the, the sort of the, the menu of factors that contribute to being good at a certain either that's a cognitive task, a physical task, a sporting task, whatever, a behavioural skill or talent that you have, are so broad. Uh, so, for example, I um, I was a sprinter, I was a 400-metre runner. If you looked purely at my genomics, you may have said that I would not have been suited to be a sprinter from what we know so far. But my desire was to be a sprinter. So no matter whether I was suited better to another sport or another event, I didn't care enough about it. And think about all the other factors. Do you live with easy access to the facilities that might give you access to a great coach? Does the coach at that local track happen to be really good at the particular event that you might be suited to? Do you have a family member that's willing to drive you to the... There's so many factors in this. And that's, I think it's really interesting to look at. So, you know, an interesting example is thinking of Jamaica, world-leading power in, you know, in, in sprints, very much so in sprints. People in a young age will stop being football players in order to become sprinters, as opposed to the other way around in every other culture in the world. And that's the, their genomic makeup is one factor, I'm sure, but the fact that their culture completely and utterly is obsessed with running very fast for shorter periods of time is a much more powerful factor than, than any sort of bio... Uh, marker that you could look at, I believe. So, so it's um, it's a very complex picture. What I believe it can do is, as the understanding grows, if people have a goal, you either have a desire, or your local environment, your culture wants you to push towards a certain goal and makes that your target. By better understanding how you're made, we can better personalize that journey to success. So, hopefully, in increase chances of success by understanding a genomic profile, as opposed to say no, you shouldn't try and do that. You should try and do something else because the evidence just isn't there. And I don't know if it ever will be to say that you cannot, you know, reach a certain goal or, or a better suited to change to a certain goal. Yeah. Do you know what? It's interesting you say that because I just read a piece of research that had been done by one of the national governing bodies and the kids they had who were podiuming all of them, the one common trait they all had, their mums were prepared to drive them to practice. Yeah. And it was always their mums for some yeah. reason. Yeah. And it's just weird, some of those things. So I mean, you've obviously got a tremendous handle on, if you like, the internal and to a degree, the external workings of, of what makes people successful. You've obviously gone from DNA fit and are, and are pursuing other ventures now. Are you bringing that to bear with your new interests? Yeah, probably a little bit. Um, I mean, one of my things, as we grew the business and we, we ended up being acquired by a, a bigger um, company called Prenetics and became sort of the EMEA half of Prenetics. And so it was a very, it was a very long, long journey, but that meant that we had very much broader products that we brought to market closer to the clinical world and the health medical device world, et cetera, as well. And I think one of my desires is to still be close to what I would call this sort of human performance technology. So that's things which will help people achieve sporting goals, but not just elite sports people, people that have got using sport as their mechanism to change their life, whether it's mental health or physical health. So that's what I'm really interested in is this kind of where sports technology, health technology, sort of nutrition and mindset technology all overlap. And I tend to define that as what I call human performance tech. So now we've had um, a great journey over the last 10 years in building DNA Fit and 
and into Prenetics and, and then culminating in a, a big milestone, which was IPOing the company. I'm really sort of looking forward to being slightly closer to sport and human performance in the next ventures than I do. Then, honestly, that's absolutely fascinating, Andrew. Thank you. Fantastic. Before you go, we've got everybody who's been doing these podcasts to suggest what they think has been perhaps the greatest moment in sporting technology innovation ever. Would you like to contribute to that? I think there's a very many amazing innovations that have probably contributed. I think what I would probably say is I think there is a there's a new dawn of sports technology, which I think as well, when we look back on in five or 10 years will probably be very, very more significant than we realise right now. And I think this is where you're starting to see signs of this in terms of revolutionising the fans viewing experience of sports. So in track and field in the last season or two in athletics, they've started to give live data feeds from the athletes, the speed they were moving at, the distance between every athlete. And I think now that it's become completely normal for everybody to track certain biometrics with wearable technology, etc. I'm working with a startup that does live hydration, for example. I think we're close to a precipice of an incredible change in how we view sport. And I'm thinking of, if you ever watched like poker on television where they've got the players' heart rates so they can have an insight into how they're feeling or if they're panicking or if they're feeling really calm... I think I'd love to see sort of sport go even further that way, where you've got a live feed of every single athlete's heart rate, every single athlete's hydration status, every single piece of data about that performance happening in real time. And I think it's a really significant like second screen experience for sports viewers, either in the stadium or watching at home. I think that's going to be a real, um, it's going to be what unlocks and makes mass viewing of live sport relevant to the younger generation that want more data and want to sort of be more distracted with other things at the same time as watching sport. So that's my, that's my, I don't think it's yet the goat, but I think that when we look back on sports tech in five to 10 years, we'll realize that this was a turning point where this kind of live stream of data feeds, potentially of biometric data feeds about the sports people themselves will be a really significant technology advancement. Well, huge thanks to Andrew. And if you want to tell us what you think is the greatest technological moment or invention in sporting history, we want to hear it. So contact us at techchairs at sportstechgroup.org or tweet us at sporttechgroup using the hashtag sportstechgoat. And just to alert you that over the next few episodes, we'll be talking Formula One and cycling, broadcast and fashion. So from both of us, lounging in our tech chairs, goodbye. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode of Tech Chairs. We hope you found it informative, thought-provoking, entertaining. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to stay up to date with all things sport tech, be sure to subscribe. You can follow us on Apple, Spotify and all good podcast channels. And if you have any feedback, suggestions or just want to say hello, contact us on Twitter at Sport Tech Group, LinkedIn, the STA Group or by email techchairs at sportstechgroup.org. Don't forget, if you're posting on social, our hashtags are techchairs and sportstechgoat.